And I think what will be written on my epitaph is is that I <laughs> cave dive underneath a Sonny's Barbecue restaurant under the salad bar. <laughs> and in that, yeah, in that case, the team actually tracked. While I'm diving underneath the Sonny's restaurant, they literally bust through the door with all of their like outdoor hiking gear, machete, like the whole thing. They go in the door of the restaurant and they're yelling, cave survey team coming through. (laughs) People are just kind of looking going, what the hell? (laughs) And they literally planted a little orange flag in the uh, potato salad at the salad bar. (laughs) It's episode 16 of Dive in the Podcast with special guest Jill Heinerth. Dive in the podcast, your favorite podcast about all types of diving, scuba tech, free diving, and more. We cover it all. Every week on Monday, we post new episodes filled with diving news, interesting dive topics, environmentalism, and much more. This week, we get a chance to talk to Jill Heinrich about many facets of her diving career, from her first memories underwater to becoming a pioneer in technical rebreather diving, becoming explorer in residence at the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, and a lot more. Before that, though, a Canadian diver accidentally discovers a prehistoric industrial complex. A little later, Nick thinks blue with Jill. We talk cave safety and get a social media suggestion. All this week on episode 16 of Dive in the Podcast. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Justin Miller. Welcome to another episode of Dive in the Podcast. Uh, happy to be here tonight with uh, Nick Winkler. How's it going tonight, Nick? Uh, good evening. Yeah, great. Uh, sorry, just muting myself because the dog was uh, yes. howling at the ambulance. <laughs> the classic dog. Our longtime listeners, of course, would know Wally, the ambulance howler. Yeah. <laughs> uh, April, how's it going tonight uh, with your dog? I'm good. I'm actually petting him right now as we speak. So <laughs> uh, things are that's good. That's good. That's good. <laughs> I should have brought my dogs down for the recording. Uh, Amit, do you have any small animals or children with you tonight? No small animals, but my 100-pound German Shepherd is patiently sitting in the corner, as well-trained German <laughs> Shepherds tend to do. So I'm ha- very happy to be here and thrilled to have the opportunity to speak to uh, our guest tonight. Awesome. This week's guest's reputation precedes her well beyond technical diving circles, a pioneer in the field of technical rebreather diving. She's one of the world's most accomplished cave divers with more than 7,000 dives, including the being the first person to dive in the ice caves of Antarctica. A Canadian underwater explorer extraordinaire, photographer, filmmaker, and prolific author of books and articles. The first and current explorer in residence at the Royal Canadian Geographical Society and winner of countless awards, including the inaugural class of Women Divers Hall of Fame, alongside Sylvia Earle, Tanya Streeter, and Eugene Clark. In 2000, she won the Canadian Technical Diver of the Year. In 2013, the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, Sir Christopher Ndaji Medal for Exploration. The Conservation Award from the National Association of Cave Diving in 2010, and most recently, a 2020 inductee in the 20th Annual International Scuba Diving Hall of Fame. And that's uh, just to name a few. We also uh, we also can't forget she authored the incredible book, Into the Planet, My Life as a Cave Diver. Everyone, welcome to Dive in the Podcast, Jill Heinerth. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks so much. Nice to join you. We're all uh, we're all sharing this warm Canadian evening here, I think, uh, in all of our uh, all of our different recording locations. And uh, another uh, another Canadian cave diver uh, managed to stumble upon a uh, prehistoric industrial complex. Uh, they published a paper about this uh, just recently, just like last week. Uh, although the initial dive by Fred Devos was uh, was done back in 2017, he was teaching an underwater survey class, and one of the students un- noticed an unexplored passage. And uh, with later dives, they found uh, it was just a 12,000-year-old ochre mine that was used for 2,000 years. No big deal. Ochre, if you're not aware, is, uh, is like a uh, iron-based clay and uh, it's got a uh, it's very high quality so they spent years and years down there they used it in art and ceremonies possibly even to stop mosquito bites because it has a little bit of uh, arsenic in it where where they're at so could have been medicinal kind of wild uh, found tools uh, navigational parents fire pits and we're talking this is you know you know between 10 and 12,000 years ago it's uh, it's pretty wild discovery 
Yeah, it sure is. Fred has done some amazing exploration with uh, Sam Meacham down in that system, and uh, they've been they've been working that system for gosh at least twenty years. <laughs> oh wow, that's yeah. a, a big milestone in that uh, mm-hmm. lifetime of work at this point, I guess. Eh? Mm-hmm. Would be kind of fun to discover in your first cave diving class, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that yeah, was a neat uh, that was a neat component, eh? That uh, apparently they were just teaching a class and and kind of noticed that this was a thing over there and thought, hey, why don't we go have a look? <laughs> and uh, yeah, so just, I can't I can't even imagine how amazing that would be. Yeah, I imagine uh, you've had some amazing moments of discovery, and uh, you know, this is a little jumping the gun on the interview here, Jill, but I've managed you've had some neat moments there along mm-hmm. the way. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in the nineties, in in. Uh, in that part of Mexico, um, mm-hmm. Sam Meacham, who was uh, Fred's dive buddy in this uh, in this endeavor, uh, I was diving with Sam back in those days, and uh, it was wide open for exploration. Hmm. Um, well, so I guess I started the interview a little a little prematurely, um, but what we really wanted to start off asking you, Jill, is uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, where you're from and what are your first memories of the water are? Oh, sure. Yeah, I grew up in Mississauga uh, and not too far from Lake Ontario. And I was a water baby. So uh, I was excited about, you know, swimming and springboard diving and paddling and everything. Uh, But my first memory of water is actually of of almost drowning. (laughs) Oh, jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently I was just barely able to walk when I tumbled off the dock at the, uh, the cottage and nobody noticed at first. And I was <laughs> floating face down in the, in right. the water. Um, and my mom spotted the baby drifting by mm-hmm. <laughs> panic, jumped into the water, grabbed me. And, and I actually remember looking down and seeing these like ripples in the sand and how, the sunbeams coming through the water kind of illuminated these dappled rainbows on those rippling sand dunes. And yeah, so it it wasn't traumatic for me. It was traumatic for my mom. (laughs) Right, right. The, the baby's there just staring at, uh, staring at the cool rainbow effects underwater and Mm -hmm. everyone else is panicking. Yeah, that sounds about right. I have two small children and that definitely sounds about right. (laughs) Uh, it's all right. The, yeah, kids never freak out about anything unless it's extremely small and pointless. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so what is it then that uh, is it those fascinations or uh, you know the, that way of looking at things and the calm that uh, draws you to diving and and maybe even caves? You know, it's funny because according to family history, um, I was like three weeks late being born. And so the joke is that I just didn't want to come out of my my mother's <laughs> womb. <laughs> and I've been trying to get back there ever since. The very wow. first cave dive, hilarious. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm definitely more comfortable underwater than I am on land. I'm not the most graceful land being, <laughs> but uh, but water really feels like my element. I'm curious, so at what point... Um... Did you did you know you had sort of become an explorer and did did you ever consider any other career choices? Mhm. Yeah, you know, as a kid I wanted to be an astronaut. I you know, I grew up in the 60s and watching the Apollo missions was just groundbreaking, you know. I I remember running home and saying, "Mom, mom, I want to be an astronaut." And she was like, "Dear, you know, we don't have a Canadian space program." And well, um we don't have women astronauts either, <laughs> but really what I wanted to do was explore. And, um, I just, you know, found other ways to do it. And how, and how did you get into cave diving? Well, um, I learned to dive in Tobermory in Fathom five national Marine park in Ontario. And so my first dives were, um, wreck dives and, um, a little excursion into a place called the cave. Um, it's, like a short tunnel that then leads to this grotto where you can actually surface inside a cave. Mm-hmm. And I was so blown away. It was a completely inappropriate place to take a, a diver on their certification <laughs> weekend. Uh, but I was completely blown away. And um, I already enjoyed dry caving. Uh, and this just really captured my attention. <laughs> 
That's a great way to start. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were when we were chatting about doing the interview with you as a team, we we sort of joked that it would probably take us a month of research to to read up everything about you because um, <laughs> you've had such a such a long and, and varied career. But um, one one question I had was: Is there a moment or a dive that has had a, a huge significant impact on you? Uh, yeah, there was a project I was involved in with the United States Deep Caving Team. Uh, back in 1997-98 called the Wakala 2 Project, Mm -hmm. where we made the world's first three-dimensional map of any subterranean space, dry or wet. Um, So this cave was 300 feet deep, and uh, we were doing saturation-level exposures. So imagine, you know, five hours of bottom time at just under 300 feet deep, and then 17 hours of decompression. <laughs> wow. But what was most sort of monumental about that project is that that map that we created that we could now register to the surface topography would allow people to see, you know, how the surface topography related to the underground aquifer for the first time with accuracy. And and for me that turned my you know, experience as a cave diver from being perceived as an adrenaline junkie just out, you know, to get herself killed in some action sport to a valuable contributor to scientific efforts and exploration. And and it totally, you know, changed my outlook on, on what I did. I finally felt like I had a, a higher purpose, I guess, um, something I'd been really seeking for, for what I was doing. Wow, that is pretty cool. There's a really great... Uh, uh part of your book um you know we're talking about the gentleman running around on the surface in a in a canoe Mm -hmm. and uh, running through bars and everything and and it really it it really puts a really unique perspective because you know the cave diving Mm -hmm. is such a arbitrary kind of disconnected thing i think when Mm -hmm. a lot of people think about it and when you can when you can look at a map and you know you can be in a place you know it's 300 feet underneath me there's a Mm -hmm. there's a lady with a hula hoop punch you know sending uh radio waves or you know low frequency waves back up to up to the surface here that's mm-hmm. pretty amazing that the whole thing is pretty amazing yeah yeah for those that aren't aren't familiar with it we had these these beacons like you're saying the side of size of a hula hoop and we're, we're broadcasting that radio signal through the earth to a team that can listen for us and track us in real time and and so that took them you know, off into an alligator infested swamp and all kinds of places, like wherever the cave went, they tried to follow. And in, in the years since then, when I've used that, that same technology with the team, I've been tracked um, under a volleyball court, under a bowling alley, under a golf course community. And, and I think what will be written on my epitaph is, is that I <laughs> cave dive underneath a Sonny's Barbecue restaurant under the salad bar. <laughs> in that, yeah, in that case, the team actually tracked, well, I'm diving underneath the Sonny's restaurant, they literally bust through the door with all of their like outdoor hiking gear, machete, like the whole thing. They go in the door of the restaurant and they're yelling, cave survey team coming through. <laughs> People are just kind of looking going, what the hell? <laughs> and they literally planted a little orange flag in the uh, potato salad at the salad bar. <laughs> That's fantastic. But I can still go to that restaurant now, like, 20 years later and mm-hmm. uh and people still remember that and talk about it <laughs> amazing yeah and so that uh, jill that you you'd mentioned like the idea of contributing at a higher level in terms of the research piece and obviously that's an that was an incredible achievement you have to ask you um you know one of the things that i had heard in the book was that you took another piece of technology there uh, recently that was an autonomous uh drone is that correct to do similar type mapping yeah. So, uh, yeah, that mapper that we used to create the three-dimensional map, I had to drive it just like a scooter. So it was, you know, six foot three inches long. It was like 330 pounds. It was a giant thing. It was so hard to drive. Like you're, you're being towed like you are with a scooter, but we had like a little joystick to help steer with these wings on it. And it was, it was really, really physically difficult to drive. Well, I've continued to work with um, the inventor of that device, Dr. Bill Stone, 
for you know the 23 years since then and he's mm-hmm. been continuing to develop the mapping technology and today it's called sunfish and it's right. an artificially intelligent autonomous mapping device so it can swim through the cave without me it uh, it's not even tethered it can come to a junction, make a decision to turn left or right, and um, make a map as it goes. And then when it's running low on fuel, it'll turn around and uh, and make its way back home again. So that mapping device is um, now capable of, of just about anything, really. I mean, it can go <laughs> to places that I could never go. And its ultimate mission is to go to Jupiter's moon Europa to explore the liquid ocean underneath the ice. And that is like, you know, when, when I hear the term explorer, I just think mm-hmm. immediately I'm like, wow, like you're, you're pioneering equipment that will travel from, you know, potentially some of the deepest, deepest depths of the earth and will end up going out into outer space, which is incredible. So on that same token, uh, you know, you're, you are an explorer in residence of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. So what exactly mm-hmm. then does that mean? So you've obviously translated <laughs> this scientific thing into yeah. being this person who is larger than life. And so what does it mean to be an explorer in residence? It's funny when they first contacted me, um, it's a volunteer appointment basically. Um, and when they first contacted me, they said, we would like you to be our first explorer in residence, but we don't know what that is. We just know <laughs> that National Geographic has them, so we want them too, and uh, and we'd like to know what you would like to do with that office. <laughs> wow, that's that sounds incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was blown away, incredibly honored to you know basically represent my country as an explorer. Like, how how awesome is that? Mm. Um, and I told them that my my goal personally, was that I wanted to be involved in outreach initiatives to young people Mm -hmm. um, to talk to kids about exploration and discovery. So we actually found some funding from the Garfield Weston Foundation, and they uh, supported uh, me logistically to travel to very remote corners of of Canada to every province and every territory uh, to the least served um, schools we could find and, and go visit personally with the kids and talk to them about exploration and discovery. So that's, that's been great. I've done like three years of, of, uh, of those uh, sort of teaching tours. That's incredible. Cause you know, it's, uh, it's one of those ones we actually, we had uh, Harry Harris on the show a little while, a couple of weeks back. And mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting that your focus had shifted onto uh, kind of engaging youth as as a mm-hmm. means of driving or building that kind of capacity for exploration. And Harry spoke as well uh, about that uh, and his mm-hmm. his kind of initiative in Australia to kind of bring youth out yeah. back into the outback. What like what is it that drew you there uh, to that component to be able to say like you know I want to focus on youth like why the youth? Well, you know, when I was a kid wanting to be a diver, uh, all I got were sort of doors slammed in my face, whether it was <laughs> because my family knew nothing about diving or or didn't, you know, didn't think that people dived in Canada or or even once I started my diving um, activities and I wanted to make it a profession. When I went to try and enroll in a commercial diving school, I was told there was no space for women in commercial diving. Mm. Um, and so I, I, I realized that it's very easy to slam a door in a kid's face. Uh, But when kids have tangible mentors, especially when they can meet them and interact with them, it can be life-changing. So I just wanted to be the woman that I wished I had met when I was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think it's the most important thing probably that I do today. Wow. That kind of seems to tie into the fact that you've got your fingers kind of everywhere, creating a lot of content as a, as I mm-hmm. guess they call it a content creator mm-hmm. uh, these days. I mean, you know, it takes, uh, takes a, a solid, uh, you know, couple of hours, I think, just to dig through all the links on your website to, <laughs> uh, to see where everything goes. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, how, how do you find time to, to do all that? Is, is this just your, your full-time job being a, a content yeah. creator today? Uh, well, I mean, my full-time job is to do anything required to keep me in the water. <laughs> right, right, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I have a hybrid career. I mean, I'm a writer. I'm an f- underwater photographer. I, I uh, shoot video for um, 
you know, sometimes for academic uh, mm-hmm. uh, things, but also for television programs. I'm a consultant, uh, public speaker. So I'll do whatever I need to do to stay in the water. Right. <laughs> and so creating a, a lot answer. of content really helps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, uh, I, you know, that's the old, uh, I need to invent a reason to go diving uh, thing <laughs> that I think every diver, especially professional divers, have, uh, has come up with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not, it's not easy. Like you can't just go to school and say, I want to be a diver. <laughs> it's, there's yeah. many different ways to, to go at it, but especially in these times with all this COVID isolation and everything else, it's a darn good thing. I made it a hybrid uh, <laughs> list of activities because yeah, 99% of my work's been canceled this year. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. We get a, we get a lot of uh, production work in Nova Scotia and uh, mm-hmm. movie and television film stuff. And uh, yeah, they're all, they're all kind of like doing stuff as long as they don't have to go anywhere. But uh, if anybody's mm-hmm. got to come in or if anybody's got to do anything, they're all on pause, which is uh, mm-hmm. really challenging, of course. Yeah. Um, but that also means that like everyone's staying in Canada right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I know mm-hmm. at our dive shop, uh, it's just been since things opened up here in Nova Scotia, it's been been a madhouse because everybody's like, oh, yeah, I can scuba dive in Nova Scotia again. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to the, to the tropics and whatever. Um, well, there's good. there's a there's yeah. a there's a lot to do in in uh, in Canada as far as diving is doing. And uh, do you have some uh, some interesting ideas or places that that you like to dive here at home? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, if I could never, ever travel anywhere else, there is so much fantastic diving in Canada. I've, I've actually had the uh, honor and privilege of diving in every province and territory of Canada, a, a goal that I set out to complete a couple of years ago. So, so I've done a little bit all across the country. But I would yeah. say that some of my favorites are... Um, Newfoundland, uh, shipwrecks and the Belle Island mine. And, um, uh, you know, on the West Coast, I absolutely love swimming with the sea lions, the Stellars and the California sea lions out there. Yeah, that uh, that is pretty amazing. We have a uh, we have a friend of the podcast that uh, she made it a life goal to uh, to get in the water with sea lions in every mm. continent on the planet uh, mm. before her thirtieth birthday. So that was uh, she's pretty uh, pretty amazing. And uh, you know, uh, I'm just going to jump in and toss this to April here because her uh, her family is actually from Bell Island. And, oh no way! Uh, yeah, wow. yeah. My mom's side of the family is all from Bell Island. Oh, are they still there? A lot of my mom's family is. My parents, of course, now they live in Nova Scotia. But so my mom grew up in Belle Island and my parents actually met out in Alberta. Uh, But then when they came back out east, my dad did a lot of diving in Belle Island. So it's really cool. And it's cool to dive somewhere that my mom's from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a, a remarkable story, the Bell Island story. There was a, a lot of Canadians don't even realize that German U-boats came in and sunk four um, wrecks in, in 1942, um, just off Bell Island. And those wrecks were carrying a very high grade of iron ore from the Bell Island mine. And that iron ore was critical to the shipbuilding efforts in, in the war. And so the Nazis thought if they sunk the ore carrying vessels that that might, you know, scare people first right. of all right. and uh and maybe you know change the tide of the war um so they they did sink four vessels and there were was a significant loss of life and then they also destroyed the loading wharf at bell island um now newfoundland wasn't part of canada back then but mm-hmm. um but a lot of people don't realize just how how close the battle of the atlantic really was to canada yeah, there's uh, there's so much history up and down the uh, mm-hmm. East Coast and and more all over Canada, of course. But uh, yeah, it's uh, you, even here in Nova Scotia, you know, we have a uh, lot more accidental wrecks, a lot less uh, <laughs> sinkings. But people mm-hmm. think, you know, oh, there's stuff in the water here. There's history here in this water, and they're just mm-hmm. they get so amazed. Uh, so it sounds like uh, it sounds like that's a, a prime opportunity for. Uh, for you to come out and uh, just do a whole uh, whole series on Nova Scotia diving, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, when I was doing my underwater Canada efforts, I really only got a chance to just you know, <laughs> yeah, just yeah, pass you through because the uh-huh. the weather was so bad. <laughs> when, no, that that does happen. There. But I need to come back. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're ever coming back, I mean, we have a number of divers on this podcast that would be thrilled to come diving with you. So, oh, awesome. I'm sure we can well, make some things happen. 
I love that. <laughs> can dive with the sea foxes. All right. That's right. We have an all women's dive club uh, back in Halifax called the Sea Foxes. Uh, oh, cool. We have over 100 women now diving with the club. And yeah, it's been awesome. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's probably arguably the art, the most uh, most active dive club in Nova Scotia, male, wow. female, or otherwise. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's pretty prolific. Fantastic. So getting back to diving in uh, random places in Canada, probably mm-hmm. the most random, uh, <laughs> to use my, my term there, uh, it would be the Arctic. Uh, mm-hmm. It seems out of reach for most people um, to dive there. What does it take and what is it really like? Mm, uh, it's amazing. In the water. Yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing. Uh, I unfortunately was not able to go up this summer because of COVID. Mm. We're trying to keep COVID out of Nunavut, and so that means right. that everybody canceled their expeditions this this summer. Um, but it's it's so remarkable. It's such a privilege to to visit the north, to meet the people, to see the the wildlife, the polar bears, the narwhals, the belugas, bowheads, mm. um, everything. Yeah. It's 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 incredible. And we we usually camp on on top of the the sea ice in Lancaster Sound. Mm. And um, it's also something that I I feel is um, quite finite. Like I'm not sure how many years that's even going to be possible anymore. Cause every year when I go back, we have to go a little bit earlier and the ice is a little bit more dangerous. Um, mm-hmm. So it's breaking up earlier. It's thinner. And um, I don't know how many more years I'm actually going to be able to get up there and camp on the ice. That's um, that's actually a, a true testament to, to climate change, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so palpable when you're up there season to season seeing such dramatic changes and then hearing the stories from the local Indigenous people as well. It's amazing. And I guess for most Canadians, the Arctic is still sort of out of place, out of mind, a little bit like caves, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's hard to get to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really, it's tough. And um, it's so, it's so remote. Um, and, you know, we still we still need a lot more, you know, connections and storytelling of things that are happening in the North. Like I, I would just love to see more and more of our, you know, Northern indigenous citizens get involved in, in scuba and filmmaking and storytelling mm. and, and share these really important stories themselves from their own viewpoint. There was an interesting article that I had read and not to, you know, deviate too far into that point, but where you brought up the, uh, the idea of bringing indigenous communities into, uh, the research and components of it, where because of the, I guess, the reduction in the, the, the size of the ice packs that are out there, indigenous communities are having a hard time moving across the ice like they used to. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a partnership, I think, between them and the scientific community where they're actually planting, um, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like sensors within the ice so that when they do decide to go out, they actually have some uh, some information as to where is the safe ice versus non-safe. Mm-hmm. So when you connect those two factors together, you think like, you know, there's obviously huge uh, ability, I think, to draw on on the ability to to get that that experience, that actual knowledge mm-hmm. within the community. And, and if you look at like sort of that, uh, you know, ABCD type um, research base, like the uh, asset-based community development, if you want to look at that, uh, from a scientific community, you would really have the ability to draw on some significant expertise from the Indigenous community there to, to develop a body of work. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's worth noting that the uh, the Indigenous people call that sea ice the land. Mm-hmm. So that is what connects them to their families, to other communities, that enables them to participate in their cultural practices, their hunt. Um, everything so without the sea ice their their way of life is is irreparably changed Mm -hmm. and have you seen the impact of that yourself while you were out there oh gosh yes um you know i remember one kind of sad story you know a few years ago i met this really remarkable woman dolores in in nain labrador uh she was uh in charge of food security for her community so she would um dispense you know gasoline, bullets, like whatever people need in order to go out and hunt to bring back things that could be shared within the community. So if someone's successful in a hunt, they bring it back, it goes into the freezer, and then families in need can come and access that food at any time. Mm-hmm. So food security is is um, threatened, and she was protecting that. And I went back to visit her two years ago, 
and discovered that she had committed suicide. And, uh, and that to me was just so tragic, but, but handling this incredible responsibility for the community in the face of such, you know, change and and dire predictions, um, just left her desperate. And Mm -hmm. it's so sad. I was I was curious because you mentioned a moment ago about you know wishing for for more uh, indigenous um, representation in diving and in storytelling because mm-hmm. we we had a guest last week um, from the Bahamas who also you know uh, is not represented in, in generally in diving. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, with all the social issues that that is faced up in North, that that must be in itself a huge challenge. No, yeah, definitely. Uh, I was involved in one project. Um, uh, I guess about five years ago, where we took some mini aquariums to um, communities and set them up on the like the town pier, and then populated the aquariums with uh, things that we got right out of the water, right beside the pier, <laughs> wow. and and then invited the whole community to see them. And it was fascinating for us to say, "Hey, you know, here's a sea star. Here's how it eats. Here's, here's, uh, you know, all these other animals." And that, we created these little touch tanks, basically. And then <laughs> after the whole experience, like at night, we took everything back and returned it to the sea. Um, so it was a it was a great experience because we also it was a two way experience. They could teach us what they knew about the the different animals, and they only had. Um, uh, Inuit names for the things that they actually ate. So there were some creatures that they didn't have, um, you know, indigenous names for, uh, just because they were, you know, they didn't serve a purpose, I guess. Um, so, so it was interesting, but it sort of fostered some, some, you know, new interest in in what lay beneath the surface. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess it's that bridge that you can build there between the ability to get under the water, mm-hmm. and opens up a lot of a uh, lot of eyes. I think for mm-hmm. uh, for what's available there. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we come mm-hmm. back. We'll uh, continue on with a little bit more talk about diving in Canada. Mm-hmm. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to take a second to thank our sponsor, Torpedo Ray Scuba. Torpedo Ray's is a local dive shop in Nova Scotia. If you're not in Nova Scotia, that's okay. They've got a wonderful website, torpedorays.com, T-O-R-P-E-D-O-R-A-Y-S.com. All of the scuba gear you could ever need is there. If you can't find it, give Jason a call, 902-481-0444, and he'll be happy to help you out. And these challenging times, it's always great to shop local. Don't go to a huge big box Help support your local dive shop. Buy something you've had your eye on. Excellent time to make a good deal. Buy a gift certificate to use later. Whatever the case may be, Torpedo Rays and TorpedoRays.com will be there for you. Once again, their number is 902-481-0444 or TorpedoRays.com. All right, and uh, welcome back. So just while we were away on commercial break there, Jill was telling us about some interesting uh, diving that she's been doing right here in Canada, and some of that has is connected to some research and as well some cave diving. Jill, are you able to give us a bit of information on that or bring this, the audience up to date on that? Sure, yeah. Yeah, so there's a, a 10 kilometer so far <laughs> and growing <laughs> uh, cave system that uh, actually goes across the Ontario-Quebec border in the Ottawa River. And um, it's not going to be a huge attraction for most divers because it's cold, it's extremely high flow, and extremely low visibility. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so it's not exactly an easy day out. But um, there's some pretty interesting endangered species in there um, in the form of mussels, bivalves. And who knew that these little bivalves could be so interesting? And and I'm becoming an expert in the sex lives of mussels (laughs) as a result. (laughs) But but I'll tell you about it. Um, So I'm collaborating with a scientist who's not a cave diver. And when he Mm -hmm. heard that these mussels are in the cave, he's so excited because (laughs) nobody's ever written about um, bivalves living and reproducing in caves. And in order for some of these freshwater mussels to reproduce basically they grow a lure out of their own flesh so you know bear in mind these things have no brain and no eyes but somehow they have evolved to be capable of growing a fish-shaped lure out of their own flesh (laughs) and they can 
extend this out of their shell and it's the most beautiful thing. It looks like a gorgeous minnow with frilly <laughs> wow. fins and eye spots and a tail and and it, it actually flicks it flicks the tail in in a pattern and it's only appealing to lake sturgeon. So the really? lake sturgeon okay. see this lure and they go, wow, and they bite at it. And if it's a young lake sturgeon, the muscle will spray its young, they're called glochidia, into the gills of the fish. So they're like microscopic little flapping shells that are like opening and closing like a <laughs> mouth, right? And they grab onto the gills or the fins and the young lake sturgeon can carry them around for a while before its immune system develops enough to reject the glochidia that then dive into the silt on the floor of the cave and stay there for a couple of years <laughs> before emerging as a young mussel. And some of these mussels are like 80 or more years old. So, you know, here they are creating these lures and attracting the, the also threatened lake sturgeon um, to create this beautiful dance to, to build a new colony. And uh, I think that's pretty interesting. And the lures are beautiful. <laughs> all those people that say uh, lake diving is so boring. Uh, yeah. It just blows them all out of the water right there with that story. Yeah, yeah. I could actually sit and chat about that for quite some time. But uh, when you're mm -hmm. talking about caves, too, uh, I am interested because um, Harry was here, like I said, on the show and had mentioned that I think it was Castle Guard Cave that he had dove in in Alberta. Yeah. Have you had the opportunity mm -hmm. to dive there as well? I haven't yet. In fact, I was incredibly jealous when uh, Harry and Craig came out and did that. <laughs> we're we're uh, good good old friends, uh, expedition colleagues over the years. So. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a little bit of envy when I saw that. But we were in lockdown here, so. Hmm. Oh, okay, okay. So you guys weren't even in a position to head up there. Yeah, he. I mean, I don't think you missed yeah. much from what he described it as. He said yeah. he basically could not be warm ever and opted not to dive for part of it because he just couldn't actually physically get warm enough to to be able to dive. So I think you might have skipped a good one on that from what it sounds like. You know, it's it's so funny to hear that from Harry. I mean, you know, I know he's he's Australian. He loves warm water, but he spends a lot of time in the Pierce Resurgence in yes. um, New Zealand, which is right. cold. And he does these <laughs> insane, you know, cave exploration dives 600 feet deep and, yeah. and decompression to follow. So you know, that is the essence of cold. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, he was a trooper, like, when he was here, not like not like it was a huge drop in temperature, but we took him diving. Uh, he, you know, he was gracious enough to come with, uh, with me to go on one of the wrecks here, uh, the Saguenay, and we logged his coldest dive, I think, at the time was four degrees. Uh, oh, but, excellent. you know, of course, we were, I was all proud of that. And he's, you know, he's in his hairy way. He was basically, like, just... It's only like two degrees less than what I was already diving, mate. But, you know, <laughs> but he's such a humble fellow, right? So, anyhow, he's uh, quite humble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. His, oh man, his life story is, is something else. <laughs> absolutely. Well, I, I don't think it's... Even before uh, you know, the Thai cave rescue. <laughs> absolutely. And that was really mm -hmm. our kind of focus was like, let's focus on that. But very much, well, let's bring this focus back to you because I think uh, that's where we want to be here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, Jill, if you had to pick a favorite place to dive in Canada, would it be freshwater or the ocean? So where would it be and why? Boy, that's so tough. But I think probably Campbell River, British Columbia, um, just because there's there's so much mm -hmm. <laughs> so close to there. So, I mean, you can jump into um, a river full of salmon migrating upstream, or you can um, go off in the boat and see, you know, from bald eagles to, to orcas on the surface and then jump into the water and see a giant Pacific octopus or white-sided dolphins wow. or, yeah, or sea lions. Like there's a lot of really great charismatic megafauna. And then even like the stuff that's that's growing everywhere, like from plumos and anemones to, uh, you know, strawberry anemones, everything's giant. The nudibranchs are like giant. Um, so I think, I think Campbell river, that's, it's a pretty special place. Sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. I want to go now. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
and it's warm. I mean, you know, compared yeah. to the East Coast, compared, it's really yeah. toasty. <laughs> yeah, I always uh, always see those pictures from the uh, from the West Coast in the winter while I'm diving in uh, in yeah. snow and ice and misery, and uh, you know, right. it's just you know maybe a little gray. Just, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I've I've dived in snow and wet misery out in the West Coast, <laughs> but underwater, it's it's it, you just don't want to get out because it's warmer. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, I'm totally going to change gears here. Um, mm-hmm. And really struck me when I was uh, when I read uh, read your book. Uh, I re-listened to it recently uh, on uh, on Audible, and uh, excellent narration, by the way. Yes. Um, <laughs> and the the struggle that you that you deal with, um, you get called out or 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 applauded for being the the woman who does something mm-hmm. the, as the best woman, yeah. and and that going against being the best person of you know of that type of thing you know like going the the woman who's gone the farthest into the mm-hmm. into the cave versus mm-hmm. the person who's gone the farthest in the cave and you've just done so much do you think are you still to this day battling that um i know you wrote an article about sexism yeah. and diving yeah well it, it's it's unfortunate we still have a ways to go um both with mm-hmm. you know overt sexism and and then also mm-hmm. unintentional bias that 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 happens. So we still have a ways to go. It's certainly getting, it's certainly getting better, but I do look forward to the day when, when we don't necessarily, you know, need to have like a women divers hall of fame, for instance, like, <laughs> right. um, yes. and, and that we can just like drop the, you know, we never say male diver did this, but we always say a female yeah. diver did that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it would sure be great to, to just drop that and just talk about people as divers. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, you know, and I don't want to be the guy saying things are changing, but I, I feel like people are, are op- getting their eyes opened a little bit more with so many different, um, you know, what words they use to describe uh, mm-hmm. people in general and things. So maybe maybe that ha- will have a significant effect on that as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, these are interesting times we're living in right now. There's so much yeah. that's kind of been flushed out into the open, which is, it's it's painful for society, mm-hmm. but, it's, but it's progress, mm-hmm. I think. And so, you know, whether we're looking at the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter or, or anything, or even, you know, the COVID crisis right now, I don't think anyone can ever deny that we are so interconnected on this planet. <laughs> and and that our issues are global issues to deal with. Um, so yeah. that's what allows me to to stay optimistic in the face of mm-hmm. of you know great global challenges these days. Right. Overall, the body or the scope of work that you've done has been extraordinary. I think in in anybody's lifetime, if they were to think that they would accomplish even some of that, it would make for probably a great career. Uh, but in doing that work, I think you have probably been in situations that, well, probably most of us would would just sh- shiver to think about. Uh, you know, can you tell us, like, are there any kind of close calls or is there any particular close call in, you know, that has made you sort of stop and take stock and, and rethink, hey, is this exploration thing really a great idea or, sure, or has it just been yeah. all gung ho from the beginning? Oh no. <laughs> no, there's always ebbs and flows. Um yeah, I've certainly had numerous uh, close calls in my in my diving career, but one that stands out was a was a dive I was doing with a scientist um in a very small cave, kind of the equivalent of squeezing underneath your bed where your shoulders are pinned to the ceiling and your belly's dragging along the floor. But we had a a sample that we needed to get for her work. And when we got far into the cave at our turnaround point, um, when she turned around, she got disoriented and entangled in the guideline and then stuck um, and panicked. And so I was holding her with one hand thinking, oh, my God, you know, she is the cork in the bottle containing my life. Mm -hmm. And I'm holding onto the guideline with my other hand because now the clay silt has been disturbed and I can't see, neither of us can see, but I know that she's struggling and she's stuck and she's entangled. And I feel the line getting tighter and tighter and tighter until boing, it snaps. So now I've got the bitter end of our safety line that no longer leads to the exit in one hand, and I've got her in the other hand. And I remember just thinking, you know, oh my God, you know, if two women die in this cave today, this is going to be world news. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to, I got to fix this. <laughs> um, 
but you know, in the course of of this whole experience, I had to patch the guideline three times, get her unstuck, and then I lost track of her in the silt out, and um, I had to make the choice to go further into the cave to make sure I wasn't leaving her behind uh, because I didn't know where she was. Mm-hmm. And so I did a really methodical, careful search all the way out of the cave. And at the same time, one of my two side mount regulators was so clogged with clay from sort of digging her out that, um, that it was free flowing. So the only way I could breathe on the right tank was to turn the valve on for a breath and then turn it off and then turn it on for a breath and turn it off. So by the time I got out of the cave, um, she had been out for 73 minutes. And in that way, I mean, she'd called an emergency. There were people rushing to the scene expecting to recover my body. And mm. so I had been dead to my friends for 73 minutes. And that experience really gave me and my husband a lot to talk about and, oh, and to imagine. kind of yeah. decompress from. You know, he was like, God, why do you have to keep doing this? You know, when are you going to stop? When when is enough enough? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did take a break that summer, um, with him and we rode our bikes across Canada together, mm-hmm. uh, rode 7,000 kilometers and, and took that time to present our movie. We are water at every stop we possibly could. Um, you know, a couple, three, four times a week, we were showing the movie and dive clubs and campsites and museums and churches and everything else. And, uh, and every time he saw me talking about what I do, he realized how much I love it and how much um, it was a part of what makes me who I am and uh, how he could never ask me to, to stop diving <laughs> in that light. And, you know, and that's, you speak to that a, a bit in your book in, in terms of saying like you are genetically predisposed to this sort of thing. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. In my book, I write about, um, a gene, the 7R allele, um, which is like the adventure seekers um, genetic code, basically, and about you know mm-hmm. 15% of us have this 7R allele that um, expresses itself in a way that makes us seek adventure, sensation, novelty, new things, you know, spicy tastes, exploration, all of that is is a part of someone who has that gene. Now, I don't know for sure <laughs> that I have that. I haven't had a, a test to, to confirm that. Um, but I'm pretty sure just based it's on my, my life that, that that's yeah. me yeah that's all you need to know yeah actually. you know you know yeah 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 i mean for for any diver right that's that's kept to the sport you know diving it's it's probably a huge part of their identity um mm. I, I have a question for you and this this kind of is a little bit personal for me because i decided to to focus on photography this year um with diving um what advice would you give someone um, who'd either like to follow in your footsteps or, or blaze their mm. own paths. Shoot lots. Um, <laughs> it's funny because <laughs> Howard Hall, you know, Howard Hall um, and Howard and Michelle make IMAX movies that are extraordinary. And when somebody asked him, you know, what's your advice for a budding photographer? He said, F8 and be there. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but, but really just, you know, shoot lots. I mean, when I, when I started my career, um, I I left behind everything in Toronto. I, I sold my business. I sold everything I owned. And I moved to the Cayman Islands with a Nikonis 5 film camera and um, just decided to dive lots <laughs> and take lots of pictures to get better at what I do, better mm. at visual storytelling, and um, started you know writing articles and submitting photos to magazines. And um, it was quite self-taught and very organic in, in the process. I have two two friends that are Canadian freedivers that have um that are breaking records in their own right right now and and I interviewed them for an article and and pretty much what they did was was give everything up and and they're living sort of on the on the shoestring budget and all they do is train 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 and and sort of you know parallels that that ideal I suppose yeah yeah, yeah. and if you if you work hard then you become a thirty year overnight success <laughs> 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 advice but, advice but to seriously keep. though today I mean I think there's so much more opportunity like cameras are amazing the technology is incredible mm. having the the instant feedback underwater is 
is so helpful. I mean, we used to, you know, shoot blind, basically. You, yeah. you shoot based on the exposures that you, you know, um, and then you wait <laughs> for a week or two <laughs> for your film to come back so you can see if you did all right or not. And hopefully you took detailed notes on your exposures every time you hit the trigger. But now, I mean, you take a picture, you look at the viewfinder, you looked at the histogram, you you get instant feedback and can improve so rapidly. It's it's exciting. Yeah, the technology is pretty pretty advanced right now. Yep. Mm-hmm. In in a practically another life, I was a wedding photographer at one time and uh used to shoot 36 exposures and mm-hmm. you know, that like, you know, I customers would pay for 12 24 36 exposures and uh <laughs> and i tell wedding photographers about that now and they're just like what i shoot you know twenty thousand exposures right. Maybe not that. but uh <laughs> yeah so sh- yeah shoot lots and instant feedback is just amazing mm-hmm. things have certainly grown up and uh, technology is amazing for that mm-hmm. jill are there any future plans or projects that you can share with us sure uh, unfortunately my entire year's worth has been either canceled or postponed. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, it's it's tragic. I've got one left on the books this year, um, which is going to involve me flying to California and uh, quarantine for two weeks and then get on the Nautilus, Bob Ballard's boat, do the project. And then when I get back to Canada, I'll have to quarantine back home as well. So it's oh, going to be, man. yeah, it's going to be a, a, a bit of effort for the project. But we're working in the Channel Islands off California, um, exploring, oh, wow. yeah, exploring caves, uh, sea caves that may have been sites of former human habitation during lower sea levels. So that would have been the continental margin on lower sea levels. Uh, they're real sporty caves. Uh, quite a bit of surge um from because they're on the the far side on the pacific side of the uh Mm -hmm. the islands and um and deep and uh really really interesting work diving there is so amazing Mm -hmm. channel islands are Mm -hmm. so beautiful they really are forests oh man really uh, envious of that yeah and we've taken the sunfish there the 3d mapping robot uh the last time we were we were there we set the sunfish um off the boat with no um, tenders or anything at all and uh, just said find a cave (laughs) and it literally like swam around found the edge of the island and then went along the coastline until it found an opening and it went in the cave and mapped and came back to us so that was pretty exciting this this sounds like cheating somehow (laughs) (laughs) yeah So now are you going to use this uh, in future explorations? Like, you know, I can kind of see this as you want to plan your dive and now you know where it's going to go. But is there is there going to still be a need for humans to go into caves when you guys have that capacity? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's no replacement for the, the human eyes and brain, in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, right now, this is still a developing technology. Uh, it's still so horrendously expensive that <laughs> it's sponsored by NASA. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it is being miniaturized every year that we go. But um, I'm not sure if, if, you know, in my immediate lifetime, it's going to be something <laughs> that I'll be able to take on, on dive trips. Sure would be great. Like, mm-hmm. I would love to be able to set it loose into mm-hmm. into you know even caves that I could explore on my own. I think it would be pretty cool. Yeah, it's well. I mean, I'm kind of happy to hear that because I have these like future plans of hopefully one day becoming a cave diver, and to think that I'd be rendered useless before I started. And and I think <laughs> Harry was Never. joking the other day, and he said, "Hey, just pack up the dream, son, and sell you." And so I was going to sell all my gear and give up, but <laughs> but now that I know that these two things have come together, <laughs> that the sunfish isn't going to render cave diving irrelevant, and maybe there's a chance I might I might just continue on with that dream. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, there's so many caves to explore, really. I mean, I'm still, I've been taking this like isolation time, just bushwhacking around here just to see what I can find. <laughs> that is a true explorer. You know, like you're, you're stuck in Canada, you've got cave diving on the brain and you're basically saying, you know, there's got to be something in my backyard that I can go <laughs> dive. <Austin. right? laughs> Although I'll never feel like I'm stuck in Canada. I feel like we hit the geographic yeah, jackpot. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh there's worse place to be locked up. Oh yeah. You know, for sure. <laughs> We're going to hop out here and take one more commercial break, and we'll be right back with more uh, Dive in the Podcast. 
Hi everyone, I just wanted to take a second to thank our sponsor, Torpedo Rays Scuba. Torpedo Rays is a local dive shop in Nova Scotia. If you're not in Nova Scotia, that's okay. They've got a wonderful website, torpedorays.com, T-O-R-P-E-D-O-R-A-Y-S.com. All of the scuba gear you could ever need is there. If you can't find it, give Jason a call, 902-481-0444, and he'll be happy to help you out. In these challenging times, it's always great to shop local, don't go to a huge big box help support your local dive shop buy something you've had your eye on excellent time to make a good deal buy a gift certificate to use later whatever the case may be torpedo rays and torpedorays.com will be there for you once again their number is 902-481-0444 or torpedorays.com welcome back everyone um, Jill, I had a question uh, regarding conservation. And when when divers think of conservation, they think of the oceans. But you've got a rather unique perspective, and you've advocated for freshwater conservation. Um, can you tell us why that's so important? Yeah. Well, I like to tell people that the ocean begins beneath your feet. <laughs> so wherever you live, <laughs> um, you affect the ocean. Uh, because everything that we do on the surface of the earth soaks into the ground. And, and when I'm cave diving, I can, I can see that. I'm experiencing that while I'm you know, swimming through the veins of Mother Earth. Um, I'm literally in the sustenance of the planet at the very beginning of the pipeline. And the water that comes out of caves will fill a spring and um, create a, a creek that leads to a river that goes to an estuary that, you know, dumps out into the Gulf of Mexico or wherever and joins in these world ocean currents that, that carries, you know, a pollutant from a, a remote land location to any ocean in the world. So uh, it's, it's interconnectivity. Everything we do on this water planet is interconnected. And if we understand and recognize that and then realize the importance of also providing you know, clean, fresh drinking water for our global community, um, then, you know, we have a chance at, you know, affecting global climate change. We have a chance at creating a, you know, fair, just and sustainable world by, by giving people access to clean water. It's, it's really the, the center of everything. And, uh, you know, I always say we are water. Are there, are there any particular issues surrounding um, freshwater conservation that, that's a concern to you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I like to talk about water literacy, meaning that mm -hmm. it's important for us all to understand where our water comes from. When I ask people, uh, you know, where do you get your water? They'll say, from the tap. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but <laughs> where does it come from before it's in the tap? <laughs> you know, like, where is your watershed? And we need to know where our water comes from, how we might be overusing it or unintentionally polluting it, and how we can protect it for future generations. So it, it's very important for us to get that geographic knowledge so we understand how we're in interconnected with those resources. It's one of those out of sight, out of mind issues, isn't it? Like, because mm -hmm. we, we, we're above it, but not in it, right? So it's kind of yeah. hard to think about it. And that, at least in, in the same, with the same perspective that you have. And there's a, there's a film around that? Uh, yeah, I did a, a, well, I've done a couple Several actually, <laughs> I did a series for PBS with uh, with my filmmaking partner of like fifteen years, Wes Skiles. We did a film a series called uh, Water's Journey on mm -hmm. uh, PBS in the in the United States, and um, and that actually carried very widely into the education system uh, all over North North America. Oh, wow. And then uh, about ten years ago, I did a movie called We Are Water. Um, again, same water literacy kind of message using using my voice as a cave diver to be that canary in the in the coal mine. Uh, but a lot of the TV and um, uh, feature film stuff that I do is all related to water literacy and climate change. And I try really hard to find that kind of work so that I can, you know, really give a purpose to what I'm doing. Well, thank you for shedding some light on that. Mm -hmm. So Jill, what keeps you safe in a sport that so many consider a high risk? Oh yeah. I mean, I've lost over a hundred friends and colleagues through the course of my career. So, you know, there's no doubt that it's dangerous and it's, um, it's mostly dangerous from human error. 
So, you know, I never want to be so arrogant as to say, you know, that can't happen to me. Um, mm-hmm. But I do try to learn from from the mistakes and accidents of, of others and stay extremely vigilant with safety protocols. So with my rebreather, I mean, I've been diving rebreathers since the mid 90s, and yet I will still use a checklist every single time I go on a rebreather dive. And if the rebreather doesn't pass the checklist with flying colors, then we don't go diving. <laughs> so I, I think I've, I've, I've become wiser. Um, I've become more patient. I can go to the end of the world and spend $100,000 to get there for a program for TV and then go, sorry, no, the conditions just aren't, aren't safe, you know, or, you know, or there's something wrong with the gear. We can't dive today. So I, I think I'm much better at aborting, turning around or not doing a dive. And I think that's an important rule for survivors. And I think that that's really important. And, uh, you know, a lot of people that we asked, including Harry, had really, really similar advice. Mm. Um, So I think it's all about knowing your limits and knowing when you can dive and when it's probably not a good idea. And, uh, you know, sometimes the most experienced divers are the ones who get in trouble because they skip that uh, checklist Mm -hmm. like you're talking about. Yeah. Absolutely. And then the other thing I like to say to people, especially to newer divers, is is like embrace the fear. <laughs> um, I've had people say to me, oh, you don't want to dive with me. I'm just a new diver. I'm like, oh, why? You know, well, I'm scared. I'm like, well, you're exactly who I want to dive with. <laughs> if you're scared, yes. I'm scared too. And uh, let's, you know, talk about what scares us before we get in the water. What if, what could possibly go wrong on this dive? Do we have the equipment, the skills, the background, and the ability to self-rescue or rescue each other? And, and if the answer is yes, then let's go diving. But go diving stress-free because we've just talked through all of those risks and know that we can solve any problem that hits us. So yeah, being scared just means you care about the outcome. You want to, you want to get home at the end of the day. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the same. I love diving with new divers. I think that's, those are probably my favorite dive buddies. Mm -hmm. So April, I've got a sneaking suspicion. I know who this week's social media follow is. Yeah, so this week on social media, I think we should all follow Jill. So her Instagram is Jill Heinrich, uh, and she posts a whole lot of variety of things, and everything she posts is super, super interesting, so definitely give her a follow. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug tonight, uh, your book or anything else? Oh, absolutely, yeah. If anyone wants to uh, read about my my life as a cave diver, then check out my book, Into the Planet. And uh, probably the easiest way to get it right now is on Amazon. Um, but uh, when bookstores open again, it just, uh, <laughs> it'll be all over. <laughs> so it's uh, in hardcover, audio, or ebook right now. And later this summer, it's coming out in paperback. And I'm looking really forward to that, actually. I had the opportunity to... Uh, to listen to that ebook uh, currently, and I've got a hardcover in on order. So I'm hoping at some point maybe I can meet up with you and we can get that signed. Awesome! Yeah, <laughs> we'll make it happen. Just before we wrap things up uh, tonight, Jill, I want to ask you one question. Um, just because I think it's going to be uh, you can have a pretty good optimistic note to wrap things up on here. What uh, what keeps you diving? Oh my gosh. I love being in the water in any way. <laughs> so I love swimming. I love free diving. I love paddling. I love, you know, it doesn't have to be a deep technical cave dive to get me excited. I mean, I was in the water for like two hours this afternoon in about six feet of water, just uh, finding old bottles. You know, right. um, It's just there's there's so much to see and experience and we are so privileged as divers to have a peek into this other world um and and experience it and tell these stories that it's it's as exciting to me today as it was the first time i dived well that uh, that is awesome and truly is uh, as uh, optimistic as i thought it would be and and um I really agree, and I, I can always tell the difference in some 
some <laughs> some divers that mm-hmm. you know really really have that bug and really are in the water for any reason and mm-hmm. you know that uh, that enthusiasm just uh, floods from that person to everybody around them so i really appreciate you sharing that with us and i really appreciate you being on uh, on this episode of dive in the podcast with us and uh, and i really hope uh as time progresses, we can get you on again in the future and maybe talk about uh, some more specific, uh, you know, uh, areas of uh, your expertise and, and knowledge. As, uh, it was really, really great hour you spent with us. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much. It's been great speaking with you all. But I do have to come out and dive. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll do uh, when this thing's all over, you can come out. We'll show you the ropes of, the, of uh, Nova Scotia here and uh, we'll do an in-person podcast at that point. Fantastic. Uh, that I love sounds that. incredible. Um, so, yeah. so Jill, I heard you, you've been to Grenada. Mm-hmm. Yes. I actually, I actually grew up there and um, uh, good friends of mine, Peter at Aquanauts and Christine oh, at yeah. Ego Dive. Yeah. Um, so they just asked me to say hello to you. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Oh, I, yeah. I loved Grenada. Beautiful place. I'm glad you did. Yeah, it's special mm-hmm. to me. So, Thank you uh, to Amit. Uh, thanks for being co-hosting on the episode tonight sir uh once again very happy to be here i think uh, i've been very blessed in, in getting this opportunity to speak to some incredible divers and jill i just wanted to say thank you very much uh certainly you've uh, made it a memorable podcast for me i don't think it's very often we get an opportunity as divers to speak to sort of diving royalty so i really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with us tonight oh thank you my pleasure i enjoyed it and, uh, and Nick, it's uh, thank you for all your insightful questions and everything tonight as well. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Justin. Thank you, Jill, for being here. Um, and it's been a pleasure chatting with you. And you as well. In April, you're uh, probably, I don't know if you can hear this with your internet connection, but... Uh, I'm here. All right, April. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on tonight. And Jill, it was such a privilege to get to talk to you. You're a huge role model of mine. And... I hope to be uh, half the woman you are when I grow up. So it was awesome. (laughs) Thanks, April. Well, I definitely (laughs) want to come out and meet the, was it scuba foxes? Sea foxes. Sea foxes, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Almost, almost. Okay. (laughs) Definitely. You can follow the show on Instagram and Facebook with at divein.thepodcast. You can email us at divein.thepodcast at gmail.com. Send us a voicemail on our website www.diveinthepodcast.com If you send us a voice message, we'll try our best to play it back on an upcoming episode. You can find me at IDiveOK. April's at April Weikert. Nick Winkler is at Nicholas Winkler Photography. You can find links for everything we mentioned on today's episode in our show notes or on our website at diveinthepodcast.com. We'll see you next week for Women's Dive Day. April and some of the members of Nova Scotia's awesome ladies diving club, the Sea Foxes, take over the podcast with a special early Saturday release. That's right. We'll release the show two days early so you can hear it on Women's Dive Day. Don't miss it. This episode of Dive in the Podcast was brought to you by our sponsor, Torpedo Ray Scuba. Head over to your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 